when an epidural is given, it reduces or blocks the mother's natural endorphins. So if the epidural wears off, she could be in more pain than she would have been if she didn't have it in the first place. Plus, she's farther along in labor, so that hurts. Hello, I'm Carolyn, and this is What Doulas Know. I'm a doula, the mother of two, and for over 40 years, a registered nurse. My goal is to educate, support, and empower before, during, and after pregnancy with a special emphasis on labor and childbirth. All information presented in this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical diagnosis or treatment. The persons presenting the episodes are not licensed doctors. You should consult a qualified medical professional before making any decisions regarding your health, including any decisions based on information presented here. Hello, it's Carolyn. Today we're going to talk on what doulas know about the seduction of induction. Um, on this episode, we have Linda Smith, and if you've listened to other episodes, you know that Linda is a wealth of information on aspects of pregnancy, birth, and breastfeeding, and is compassionate about educating women. Uh, her complete bio is on whatdoulasknow.com, and today we're going to take a chapter right out of her book uh, called The Cascade of Interventions, Chance or Choice, The Seduction of Induction. And uh, on the first paragraph, it talks about the toaster theory. So. <laughs> I learned the toaster theory when I was studying childbirth education back in the 70s. I lived in Canada. Our teacher said, the toaster theory, when they're done, they pop out. And to make that more scientific, there are chemical processes in the baby fetus. I don't like calling it a fetus. In the baby that signal the mother's body that it's time to come out. Lung maturity is part of it, but there's more than that. So the normal length of gestation is then the bell-shaped curve. We know 38 to 42 weeks is within normal. We worry a little bit under 38, and we worry a little bit over 42. Although some babies are designed to be 42-and-a-half-week babies, they needed to get fully cooked before they come out. So what happens usually, uh, we had an episode on due dates and how uh, crazy those are. And so you're sitting at home, and you're just waiting, and every little twinge and cramp, you're like, okay, is this it? Is this it? So what? how do we know when actually we're going into labor? The contractions don't stop. Okay. I mean, m uteruses contract on and off throughout our lives. Um, when we're pregnant, we're much more aware of that because the uterus has expanded. There's a baby in it. The muscle is, is tighter. But as labor begins, it contracts more frequently and more strongly. And that pattern can go back and forth for weeks before it finally kicks in. Moms can dilate three, four, five centimeters, which is halfway the cervix opening before labor really kicks in strongly. Mm. And that's fine. Um, my Malachi co-leader, Debbie, once said the trouble with the last six weeks of pregnancy is knowing which six they are. Because right. it's hard. Everybody says, haven't you delivered yet? And you don't want to start anything because because you might go into labor and then what if I start it and I can't finish it? I found myself doing chores that I didn't even like because I was so bored because yeah. I didn't want to start something big. Start something big. You know, most things you can stop and pick up later or not bother picking up later. 
So what happens if your body doesn't go into labor when whoever deems possible and they come to you and they say, I think we need to induce you? What's this we business? (laughs) Right. This is my body. What are the risks of this going further? Oh, well, maybe the baby would die. Okay, fine. How would I know the baby's in trouble? Count fetal movements. Okay, here's a chart. I'm going to count. If I get to 10 by noon, I'm done for the day. If it's noon and I've only had one, oh, maybe I ought to go and check this out. So the World Health Organization and other people that study this, there are medical indications for induction before labor starts on its own, and they're a very small percentage. I just looked that up literally yesterday, and it's somewhere in the 10 to 15% range. So I think maybe we need to back up a little bit. What is induction? Induction is usually uh, it's a couple of ways. You need to stimulate the uterus to start contracting when it wasn't planning to. So one is the hormone oxytocin, which when it's produced normally does two things. It changes the woman's behavior and it causes certain muscles to contract. So that's the one they give as a chemical, which only does the muscle contraction, starts the uterus contracting. They can break the bag of waters, which then that opens things up to infection. They can use a suppository of prostaglandins, which is in semen, a good way to, if you want to induce, you could do a little sex. And prostaglandins will help soften the cervix so it starts to open around the baby. So there's a couple of things they can do. Okay, so when they start a Pitocin drip, then the body doesn't really have any other choice but to start contracting. And is that a contraction that is effective? It can be, or it could be just strong and hurt a lot. Um, In fact, if the Pitocin is given at the wrong concentration or the wrong speed, it can cause what's called tetanic contractions where the uterus contracts and doesn't relax. So a normal contraction is about a minute. So it starts slow, it builds up, it goes down. In the hardest part of labor, it's 90 seconds, sometimes going on to two minutes. But there's always a beginning, a peak, and an ending. If Pitocin is used, it can contract too strong and actually push the cervix closed. And it can hurt like hell. And what does that do to the baby? It causes the baby's oxygen to drop. That's the biggest consequence of induction is that the baby's oxygen drops. Okay, so we have a we have an induction. We we've got our pitocin going, and it really hurts like heck. So, what is the next intervention of that they offer? Often they'll give the woman pain relief because the contractions hurt more, and they'll often give her oxygen because they want the baby to get oxygen. They may ask her to change to a position so that she's not on her back, so the uterus kind of hangs free of her body, sitting her upright or leaning forward, so there's more oxygen flow to the uterus and there to the baby. And the other one is the epidural. Epidural is an injection of some medication, usually a narcotic, into the epi, means outside, the dura, The dura mater is the covering of the spinal cord. So it doesn't go into the spinal fluid. That would be called a spinal anesthetic, which can be used for a cesarean or for surgery. But an epidural goes into a little space outside the dura mater and then flows up and down inside that space area and numbs the nerves that cause the pain, the nerves from the uterus and from the lower part of her body. What happened to me is they started the Pitocin, then they put in the epidural, and then the epidural slowed my contractions, 
And so they gave me more Pitocin and then it was just a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until finally they said, well, we need to let the epidural wear off. So I ended up pushing without any aid in the whole end of it. What are the consequences of an epidural or um, an elective cesarean without labor? Is that those drugs block your natural oxytocin. They also block your natural endorphins. Beta endorphins are the runner's high. It's when you're doing something really active and vigorous, you don't notice you've gotten hurt until afterward where it really hurts. Those natural pain relievers are secreted in the mother in labor, and they increase as labor progresses because labor gets harder as it goes on. They also increase in the baby and fetus to protect the baby from any pain or discomfort as the baby moves through the pelvis. When an epidural is given, it reduces or blocks the mother's natural endorphins. So if the epidural wears off, she could be in more pain than she would have been if she didn't have it in the first place. Plus, she's farther along in labor, so that hurts. And it also reduces the baby's pain relief. So the baby is more vulnerable to the actions of the uterus contracting around the baby and the baby being pushed through the pelvic outlet. And it gets worse. It actually, those drugs actually affect the endorphins in the mother's milk afterward. We know that mothers have pain relief endorphins in their milk. It stays elevated for about 10 days, and it's even higher in preemies. So even more important that the mother's own milk get to the baby unless she had an epidural or labor without a cesarean without labor, in which case the levels in the milk are lower. What are the effects of an epidural on the infant? I think we talked about that. Does it make them more lethargic or does it make them um, unable to latch properly or does it mess up with their neuromuscular development? That's really hard to study because, first of all, there's different drugs given by different anesthesiologists And different babies have different vulnerability levels, and they don't come with labels. So you don't know that the baby that you're carrying can only have four things go wrong before the baby falls apart, or 27 things, or 182 things. Epidurals, in general, if they affect the mother's ability to feel, they affect the baby's ability to feel. So one thing that we know is the babies have a harder time crawling to the breast. Normally, we want the baby placed directly in the mom's belly after birth, and they can literally crawl themselves to the breast that somebody's supporting so they don't fall off, even after a cesarean. Epidurals slow that baby's response crawling to the breast. They can also affect the baby's ability to breathe, which is a bad thing, to suck, which is why they try to go to the breast. They open their mouth, try to latch and stop and coordinate, suck, swallow, and breathe in a coordinated manner. And again, we don't know which babies are going to have a bigger effect once the epidural is given. Now, some drugs have a longer half-life in the baby than they would in the mother. So for you, your epidural wore off in probably about an hour, hour and a half. Most of the drugs that are given wear off in an hour, hour and a half in the mother. Some of them have an eight to nine hour wear-off period in the baby. Some of them have a longer period, up to 15 or more hours. So the baby can be still feeling the effects of these drugs days after the baby comes out of the mother. And And they get to the baby very quickly. 
They get to the mother in seconds. Your pain relief is very quick. That's the good thing. But they also get to the baby in 15 seconds to two minutes. And the, that is true with the actual drugs they use for induction as well. Well, no, because the drugs for induction only cause the uterus to contract. Okay. The pain relief drugs get to the mother, which is why you give them. It goes to her brain, and they also get to the baby's brain. So the mother gets a little groggy, a little um, – some of them cause an out-of-body feeling. Well, why wouldn't it cause that in the baby? How would you measure it if you could? Right. So these babies are – they're not sleepy. I, I refuse to call a baby who has been exposed to narcotics in the mother's epidural sleepy because a sleepy baby wakes up in an hour to an hour and a half, 60 to 90 minutes. They're not sleepy. They're drugged. They're drugged. And so is there any downside to Pitocin or the oxytocin for the baby to in the breastfeeding afterwards? Yeah, because the con- – uh, I mean uh, postpartum oxytocin? Yes, postpartum. Once the baby is out, then the baby is not affected – except through the milk. And Pitocin wouldn't affect the baby through the milk. You want the uterus to contract afterward. But if the birth is handled well, the baby is placed on the mom's belly, baby crawls up and latches onto the breast, those first two hours, the baby latching onto the nipple causes very strong contractions of the uterus and controls bleeding. It's the number one way to control postpartum hemorrhage if you don't have all the drugs available. And it's probably better anyway. So the, um, the the next intervention there, naturally, after the baby is born and the placenta is born, is an injection of the oxytocin to get the uterus to contract right. to keep from bleeding. So that is uh, considered an intervention. It's also done quite frequently without – Pretty routine. Um, Nobody uh, wants postpartum hemorrhage. Right. That's really, really dangerous for the mother. Yeah, and but they usually do it without the informed consent. Right. It's just part of it's what part happens. Of, right. It's like when you have uh, hip replacement surgery, they put the inflatable things on your lower legs so you don't get blood clots. I didn't ask for that. I would not have wanted to refuse that. Right. 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 No, that's done pretty routinely. Now, if the baby were there and crawled to the breast, is it really needed? How would you study that safely? That's the problem with some of these interventions is you don't know how to study them safely. Will the postpartum pitocin affect the baby? Not much. Drugs in the milk, not much gets through to the baby anyway. Anything given in labor gets through to the baby very quickly. But anything given to the mother, only about 1% of whatever the drug is gets to the baby through the milk. Now, 1% isn't the only number, but it's the most common. So we've talked about a couple of interventions uh, today with Linda Smith, and we're going to call it a day. So uh, thank you, Linda. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Doulas Know. You can learn more about the show and my guests at whatdoulasknow.com. Please rate and review this show. It helps get more exposure and reach additional people. Peace to all. Thanks.